Hey, everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Wow, thank you for being here today in our fourth, fourth week in service. Hello to all of you here in South and those of you watching in the North Auditorium on television online. We're so thankful that you've joined us this week. And uh, I, if you wonder who that message was about silence your phones, it's actually for me. I was doing the men's luncheon uh, message last Wednesday and I, in the middle of the message, I heard a phone ring and I thought, who left their phone on? And then I felt the vibration on my wrist. <laughs> it was my Apple Watch. That's not a watch flex, guys. I just... <laughs> so last night in the 545 service, I was telling the audience, like I'm telling you, about that. And what it was, it was a leader who's very influential in, in, in ministry to, to, to Jewish people. And... So I'd wanted to hear from him, but the, it rang uh, during the men's luncheon. And, and I, like I said, I told everybody at 545, and then in the middle of the sermon, the same guy called again, <laughs> and, and it rang while I was speaking. So I, if you wonder who that message is for, it was for the pastor. So uh, <laughs> so glad you guys are here today. Well, if you have a Bible, you might want to open it to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. We're actually going to look at just a small scripture in Revelation 6, and then we're going to move to three chapters in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37, 38, 39. I had planned, as you know, to bring the last message from the Through series today, and we'll get to it sometime. I really think there's a Through 2 series coming someday, and uh, I'll cover it then. But today, I need to make something right that I may have gotten wrong last summer. And to do that, I need us to return to Clash 4, the book of Revelation, and I'll explain in just a moment. But let's start here with the tragedy that we've all watched unfold in the last eight or nine days. We know what happened a week ago Saturday. Hamas sucker punched Israel by raining down thousands of rockets as innocent citizens rested on Shabbat. But it was not just an ordinary Sabbath. It was a holy day. It was Simchat Torah. Simchat Torah is a holiday that celebrates the word of God. Don't you find that at least significant, that the attack was not only on the people of Israel, it was also an attack on the word of God. But it was more than just rockets. Anyone who has watched Israel in the last 50, 60, 70 years, you know that Israel has received rocket fire from both the northern border and southern border. But it was more this time. These terrorists bulldozed their way through borders and poured in randomly attacking the innocent. And by now we know that those terrorists killed over 1,300 Israeli citizens. And we've discovered on the bodies of terrorists, we've discovered their instructions to, to centralize their attack around elementary schools. And we know that they killed over 1,300, they wounded thousands, they were dragging off women, children, and the elderly into the serpentine labyrinth of tunnels. And as American citizens, we not only grieve that great loss of life in the Middle East, but we also grieve 29 of our own 
American citizens who were attacked and killed, and some of our fellow citizens are being held hostage, we believe, right now. There are stories of these savage monsters forcing their way into homes with sleeping families and slaughtering the people inside. We know by now that over 50 children were killed. Some of the babies were beheaded. In Sorot, which is a town that's very precious to Mary Alice and me, it's precious because we had many wonderful experiences there. Back in 2019, Mary Alice and I were invited by the foreign minister, which would be tantamount to our Secretary of State. We were invited by the foreign minister because of our friendship with an Israeli consul general, who, by the way, I'm in contact with now. For those of you who remember Galad being here with his family, uh, Galad would like to come back to New Spring, and we're talking about working that out, trying to see if he can get out of Israel. But because of Galad's friendship and through the foreign minister of Israel, Mary Alice and I were invited to Israel to see the things that the average tourist does not see. We were taken up to the northern border with Syria. We were taken to a border crossing in Gaza. Never will forget being there. 900 trucks go back and forth between Israel and Gaza every day. And we watched... Well, the police chief who was over that facility took us through and he would point to gashes in the concrete and he would say, that's where mortar fire came. That particular police chief had been wounded three times. And of course, it's very hard for us here in the United States to get believable media from the mainstream media per se because our media so skews what's really going on over in Israel. I mean, let me give you an example of that. When we were at that border crossing, there were numerous young men with automatic weaponry there checking the trucks. Half of the young men who were there were Jews. Half of the young men were Arabs. And they were working together for the security of Israel. But we don't get told that kind of thing because we get gaslighted in our country by those who have an agenda. But setting that aside, as I said, we were, we were shown things that the average tourist will never see. We saw the difficulties of security in that land. I remember when the police chief was walking me past the bunker, he said, if the sirens go off, you have minutes in Tel Aviv. He said, you have 15 seconds here. And I, trust me, I filed away where that shelter was as we walked around that facility. I remember being outside the city of Ashkelon and overlooking and the ground all around us smoldering because 14 balloon bombs had been sent over that morning. The ground around us was still on fire. That's a daily thing. But I especially remember being in Sorot because the mayor was showing us around and she took us to the police station and behind the police station was a chain link fence sectioned off which is about the same size as one of these sections here on the ground floor. And that whole yard was filled with misshapen metal. And I could tell that at one time all that metal had been in a cylindrical shape, but much of it was flattened. But, and, and, and I learned later that oftentimes what Hamas would do is cut up pipe under the ground, plumbing pipe, fill it with incendiaries and then launch it toward Israel. Sarot was the most missile shot town in Israel. You know, you would think, and this is what what really got my attention when we were going through the streets of Sarot, you would think that living in that kind of place, it would feel like an overground bunker, but it wasn't. There were, the streets were filled with people. There were children riding their bikes. 
And the memory that's most blazed into my brain was all of the beautiful parks that were in Sarot. And those parks had statuary in them. And, and these statues were of musical instruments. And they were presented in a kind of modern art representation. But there were trumpets and saxophones and tubas and pianos and harps, guitars. And they were all in beautiful pastel colors. And they were throughout the parks. And it just really captured my attention. And I remember as the mayor told me that all of those metal statues had been created out of missiles that had been shot into Zerub. And our, I understand that there are those forces with an agenda who want to tell us that there's some sort of moral equivalency between Israel and the terrorists, but I assure you there is none because as, as a rabbi once told me, he said, if the terrorists would lay down their weapons, there would be no war. If Israel laid down their weapons, there would be no Israel. And I say these things because I've watched this kind of development through the years when there is conflict there, that there will be those who early on will say that Israel has a right to defend itself but then as Israel does begin to do what they must do, oftentimes those voices turn very squeamish. And I think behind it is, is an anti-Semitism that's pretty pervasive in our world today. And that is not something that is available to a child of God. First of all, no racism is available to a child of God. There is never an excuse for a child of God to be racist in any fashion. But beyond that, we have the word of God that tells us that God is in a covenant relationship with Israel. Not to say that they're perfect, but you understand that their enemies are not looking for a two-state solution. Their enemies are looking for the destruction of Israel. And every time they acquire land, that becomes a base of operation to do more damage. And that is the fact. But in Sarot, that town that Mary Alice and I love so much, Mary Alice was telling me in between the services, she was even getting more current news than I had this morning that Sarot is mostly evacuated now. But on that Saturday morning, people went into their safe rooms and the mayor had told me that there were safe rooms in every house. And it broke my heart. In fact, I could, every time I thought about it, I couldn't stop crying on Saturday morning because she said that as the people, as the family, or with the media said, as the families huddled in their safe rooms, when they wouldn't obey the terrorists to come outside, the terrorists would set the whole house on fire, burning the families alive inside. What should be very clear to us, and something that is rarely admitted by the powers that are, is that these awful people tortured, raped, slaughtered, and beheaded in the name of their God. That there was a very strong, in fact, perhaps the most, perhaps the most ardent effect on them was from religion. As they did these things, they shouted, God is great. And we who live in the civilized world, who cherish life, we, we, we wonder what could be in their minds, even from the standpoint of self-preservation. After all, didn't they realize that when they broke across the border and performed these atrocities, didn't they realize there was a high likelihood that they themselves could be killed by Israeli retaliation? 
But in the religion of jihad, such martyrdom assures enhanced splendor in heaven, according to their belief system. Those beliefs were the same that the terrorists had who flew the aircraft into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon. They believed that by doing that, they would be rewarded in heaven. Well, enough of that, because you probably know these things already, and probably those of you who are here, you may have seen more current news than I had when I left the house this morning at 7.30. But for all of us who have even a cursory knowledge of Bible prophecy, there's got to be a question that's forming in our brains right now. Maybe it's been ever since you saw the news on Saturday a week ago. And that question is, is what's happening now foretold in the Bible? And not to keep you on pins and needles, I'll just say, I'm not sure. I don't know for sure, but it sure could be. And even if this specific issue that's taking place right now in the Middle East is not forecast in the Bible, it very well could be the pieces coming together, the components coming together for something that is in the Bible that we'll look at today. And I got to tell you, the reason why I want to come back and talk to you today, even though I thought the Clash series was over, if what we're seeing happen right now is even a lead up to what I'm going to be showing you in the Bible. What I'm going to be showing you is the beginning of the tribulation. So for that reason alone, if not for many others, I want to talk to you today. And before I get into talking about prophecy, let me give you a little disclaimer that I've given you before. Whenever you approach Bible prophecy, there are sort of three levels of interpretation. The first level is the most secure. And that is what we see for sure in the Bible. When God gives you a clear cut, no questions about it forecast, then you don't, you don't have to ask yourself, is this going to happen? You've seen it written in the Bible. For instance, we'll talk about how that we'll see scripture on this today, how that even when Israel lost their sovereignty 2,500 years ago, God promised them that he would bring them back into their land. That's, that's a no brainer. He said he was going to do it. Game, set, match. When Jesus said that Jerusalem would never be lost again when the time of the Gentiles was over and the Jewish people recovered Jerusalem, you don't have to ask about that. You don't have to start looking for other scriptures, even though there are many scriptures on that. That's what's there. That's what's there for sure. The second level is not quite as secure as the first. It is what is probable based on putting scriptures together. Every once in a while, I hear preachers say, I don't preach on prophecy. What a mistake. 27% of your Bible is prophecy. And you have to look all over the Bible because, you know, a lot of people have the idea that Revelation is the book of prophecy. Listen, guys, Revelation is just pretty much the footnotes. I mean, it's kind of like just this little final blurb. I remember teaching on the millennial kingdom of Jesus, thousand-year reign of Christ. There's a little bit about that in the book of Revelation. But my word, it's all over the scriptures in the Old Testament. It's in, it's in Isaiah, it's in Jeremiah, it's in Ezekiel. Lord knows it's in the book of Daniel. I mean, it's in the Psalms. Mary Alice and I were reading this week how that in the Psalms, the Bible says that in that millennial kingdom, in that thousand-year reign of Christ, that everybody of all the nations will be citizens of Jerusalem. That's in the Psalms. So the second level of Bible prophecy is looking at prophetic scriptures that are honeycombed throughout the Bible and putting those scriptures together and coming up with what, what appears to be biblical conclusions. So it's not quite as secure as when God states something straight out in the Bible, but it's pretty secure. And by the way, whenever I'm in that kind of thing, I will always do 
what our teachers used to tell us in arithmetic when we were in elementary school, I will always show my work. I'll show you how I came to that conclusion. The third level is the least trustworthy, and that is speculation based on what's probable and based on what God says clearly. And I've heard a lot of preachers do that. In fact, when I grew up, there was a lot of teaching on prophecy because a lot of ancient, a lot of ancient prophecies were being fulfilled in the late 60s and early 70s, especially in 1967, as I'll show you in a moment. And I mean, so much of the Christian music was about the coming of the Lord. I think I had, Mary Alice gave me for Christmas when we were in high school. She gave me the, uh, and a lot of you will have no idea what I'm talking about, the long play vinyl record album. It's like prehistoric music file. But she gave me the first Dove Awards. That was my Christmas present when I was 16. And I remember just listening to that record that Mary Alice gave me. And, and Probably half the songs were about the coming of the Lord. So there was so much, so much interest in prophecy in those days that preachers were preaching about it all the time. And a lot of the preachers got out in front of their skis because what they would do is they would start with a little bit of what was there. They would add in two scoops of what's probable, and then they would put in a whole lot of their guesswork. And the result was a lot of crazy stuff got preached and credibility was lost. I've heard so many crazy things. If I had a dollar for every stupid thing I've heard a preacher say, I'd be the richest man in Kansas. I remember as a kid, I mean, I'm, I'm promise you, I was probably 12, 13 years old. I remember listening to a preacher preach a message. And you know the number of the Antichrist is 666. And in those days, Henry Kissinger was Richard Nixon's secretary of state, and he was brokering some geopolitical deals. This preacher had worked it out. He'd assigned a number to the letters in Henry Kissinger's name, and he determined it added up to 666. Ergo, Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. I heard that preached. He probably wasn't our best secretary of state, but he wasn't the Antichrist. But I remember when I came, to, I came to New Spring in 1985, it was a small church back then, located in a different place than we are today. And I remember in the end of 1987, beginning of 1988, I started having people from our church come up to me and say, Pastor, have you read this book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988? And I'm like, no, that's not exactly the kind of book I'd pull off the shelf. Oh, you got to read it, Pastor. Once you read it, you will know for sure that Jesus is coming in September, I think it was, of 1988. I never read it. But I will tell you this. The night before Jesus was supposed to come, my phone rang and rang and rang and rang. <laughs> and there were people that were just, I mean, they, they wanted to get saved. I was a Baptist preacher. They were wanting to confess things to me. I'm not a priest, but they were wanting to confess stuff to me. Just frantic to get everything right because Jesus is coming the next day. Well, when Jesus didn't come the next day, they all went right back to living the way they had been living. So I just hope you understand that when I get into prophecy, I want you to understand that I know that a lot of crazy stuff has been said that's not trustworthy. And I will never get into guesswork. I may have my guesses, but I'll keep them to myself. And when I put together scripture, I'll show you how I put it together. But I'm not squeamish at all about that first level of what God says it's going to happen no matter if everybody in the world thinks it's crazy because here's the deal. God has a way of keeping his promises even if they're thousands of years old. You cannot beat God. Now, <laughs> I will say this. This message takes me as close to the edge as I ever get. So I want to let you know that. Right now, I want to take you back to a series, uh, Clash 4, the book of Revelation. 
In that series, I knew I was going to have 14 weeks to talk to you about the book of Revelation. So there's a lot there. In fact, the last time I had preached the book of Revelation was in 91, and I preached a whole year on it. So with only 14 weeks, I knew there were going to be topics I could talk about, topics that weren't going to make the cut. Now, it always nagged on me that I was leaving this message out. But I think, I think when it came down to deciding if it was going to make it or not make it, there were two reasons why I decided not to preach this message last summer. Number one, I had already covered a lot of this material in a message in 2022 called What's Up With Russia. And then the second reason was that I still had some haze in my mind about how what's going on right now fits with the scripture that I'm going to show you. But suffice it to say, I have a lot less haze in October than I had in August. So here we go. Revelation chapter 6. A little background. If you were with us in the series, you know already what I'm going to tell you. But in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, deal with the seven-year period of time that we call the tribulation period. It is when it begins with Antichrist. It ends with Armageddon. So chapter 6 through 19 are all about that seven-year period of time. So when you are in chapter 6, what you are dealing with is you're dealing with the beginning of the tribulation. Now, I hope I don't lose you in the next 90 seconds. If I do, just foul off the ball and come back and join me for the rest of the message. But when you study the book of Revelation, there are three series of seven judgments that God allows to happen during the tribulation. There are the seven seal judgments, S-E-A-L. There are the seven trumpet judgments, and there are the seven bowl judgments. Now, these judgments telescope into each other. What I mean by that is the seven bowl judgments really are the seventh trumpet, and the seventh, seven trumpets are actually in the seventh seal. So as you look at the seals that begin to be mentioned in Revelation chapter 6, it really encompasses all three series of judgments. But here's what, I, okay, here's what I covered in the Revelation series, and here's what I didn't cover. I covered the first seal because the first seal is the Antichrist. That's the beginning of the tribulation. Um, what I didn't cover was the second seal. What I didn't cover was what happens right after the Antichrist is known. Now, the Antichrist does not begin to rule the world until the middle of the tribulation, he just appears as a man of peace who brokers some kind of global peace settlement. But in Revelation chapter 6, verse 4, we, we read about this second seal that I didn't talk to you about. Now, the first four seals, the Bible refers to them as horsemen. Maybe you've heard the term the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Well, that's the first four seals. Okay, here's the second. Another horse appeared, verse 4, a red one, its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth, and there was war. Okay, we're going to have to work now. We're going to have to really put on our thinking caps because this is it's going to require 100% of our concentration. At the beginning of the tribulation, you have a war, but it's not Armageddon for a lot of reasons. For one thing, this war happens at the beginning of the tribulation. Armageddon is what ends the tribulation. So you've got a war, but not Armageddon. It happens at the beginning, either right after the Antichrist is revealed, maybe at the same time, maybe both events kind of morph together. I mean, I, I personally think that the Antichrist will come to power, or at least he'll come to, he'll, he'll come to recognition by brokering a settlement. Who knows? That settlement could be somewhere in, this, in the 
in the compendium of this war. But there's something really interesting to me as I think about what this war could be. You know, tribulation is a relatively short period of time. It's only seven years long. And here you have this war at the beginning of the tribulation, and you never hear about it again. You know, you would expect if there's a war at the beginning of the tribulation, it would take a few years for it to shake out, but it's not the case. So, God says there's a war at the beginning of the tribulation. It's almost like he expects us to know what he's talking about. So here's a question right now. Is there a war in the Bible that happens in the last days that's not Armageddon? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. And that war that's in the last days that's not Armageddon is an invasion of Israel. And as you'll see in just a few moments when we open the scriptures, if you take the land masses that are mentioned in the book of Ezekiel and you gave them modern names, you would have the following nations. Russia, which is why I preached the sermon, What's Up With Russia? You can still find that on the internet, I think. And guess what the second player is? Iran. I want to say that one more time. This last day's war that we read about, that's at the beginning of the tribulation, it's not Armageddon, involves Iran, possibly Turkey, and several other nations that are controlled by extremist Muslims. So where would we go in the Bible to read about this conflict? I want to take you to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. That's back in the Old Testament. It's a big book. It should be easy to find. And we're just going to scroll through Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. Hopefully, you'll take time to read this whole text when you get some time. So let, let me give you a little background. Ezekiel is God's prophet. He's God's preacher. He's prophesying around 600 BC. So God says to Ezekiel, I want you to go preach. And Ezekiel said, that's what I do. And God said, well, I got a place I want you to preach. I want you to go down to the cemetery. And Ezekiel's like, is there a funeral today? God says, nobody's living down there. Everybody's dead. I want you to go to the cemetery where there are dead bones out there, and I want you to preach. Now, I've preached in some dead churches before, but I've never been asked to do that. So let's pick it up right there. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, these dry bones, and they came to life and stood up on their feet. These next three words give me chills. A vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They said, They say, our our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you back from them. And I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Okay. Bones dry. In other words, they've been dead for a long time. And God is like saying, I'm going to bring you back into your own land. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the diaspora. Because the Jewish people have been scattered all over the world. But we saw the nation of Israel formed in 1948. And since that time, Jewish people have been coming back to live in the land of Israel. When Mary Alice and I were there, one of the places that we got to visit, we got to visit an organization that's heavily involved in allowing Jewish people, helping Jewish people move back to Israel. They have a word for it there. They call it Aliyah. And oftentimes when citizens of Israel meet each other, they don't ask, what do you do for a living? They ask, when did you make Aliyah? When did you come back into the land? Now guys, I want you to understand This is written 2,600 years ago. I mean, this 13 years after Ezekiel wrote these words, Israel ceased to exist as a sovereign nation. And they did not exist again until 1948. And God had said in these last days, I'm going to bring you back to the land. 
Hey, when Jesus came along 600 years later, he had this to say about the city of Jerusalem because here's the deal. God wanted to bring back Israel into the land, but most of all, he loves the city of Jerusalem. And here's what Jesus said. He said, Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to end. The Lord knows that's been true. It started in 586 BC when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. After that, it was the Persians, the Greeks, Romans, the Persians again, the Byzantines, the Crusaders, Muhammad, Saladin, the Ottomans. I mean, Jerusalem's been captured and recaptured 44 times. But your Bible and my Bible, and we just heard it from the lips of Jesus, your Bible says that there would be a day when it would never happen again. I don't know what's going to happen in the Middle East. It's very clear to me that none of the talking head experts have any idea how the dominoes are going to fall. They're not even sure how the dominoes are set up. But I know one thing. I know when all the smoke is clear, Jerusalem will still belong to the Jewish people because Jesus said it would be trampled underfoot until that time is finished. And we are so fortunate because we have lived in the era of watching God fulfill his word. In 1948, after 2,500 years of not being a sovereign nation, Israel became a nation again. And I'm happy to say that the first nation to recognize Israel's sovereignty was the United States of America, 30 minutes after Israel declared its independence. And I haven't always liked everything Harry Truman did, but I always appreciate how he stood alone, even against his own UN contingency, even against his own State Department. Man, George Marshall was Secretary of State. Marshall had been a legend after World War II, and he was Truman's Secretary of State. And Marshall said to Truman, if you recognize Israel, I wouldn't vote for you if you run for office the next time. But thank God for Harry Truman standing alone and recognizing Israel as a sovereign nation. I believe that's one of the reasons why God has been so good to the United States, because here's the deal. Somebody could say, well, I don't like Israel. Well, I understand that's a, that's a commonly held view today. Anti-Semitism, it's like all kinds of racism. It's just right below the surface many times. And it's covered by saccharine words. But I want you to understand that God is in a covenant relationship with this nation. They may not be perfect, but God is still in a covenant relationship with them. And he said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. That's about that. Breaking that apart would be like breaking a BB. But in 1967, and you just heard, you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Well, hey, Jerusalem was not the Jewish peoples from, 19, uh, from, from um, 586 B.C. all the way to 1967. And the way that the Jewish people got back Jerusalem was they were attacked in the Six-Day War. My rabbi friend says it wasn't a Six-Day War. He said it was a two-day war with Egypt, two-day war with Jordan two-day war with Syria. But in that attack, one of the things that happened was the Jewish people were able to get back the city of Jerusalem in 1967. Hey, I was nine years old, but I remember it. And then when we think about the dates, well, 1918 for the Balfour Declaration, 1948 for the rebirth of the nation of Israel, 1967 for the recovering of the city of Jerusalem. There's one more date, and that's 2017, because in the Jewish heart and mind, the capital of Israel is Jerusalem, not Tel Aviv. And we have American leaders who have said, we agree with that. But even though it had been passed by legislation, 
No president would execute that. I still remember Mary Alice and I were sitting at Bella Luna and I got a call. It was actually, I got a text that said, get ready for a call from the White House. Not me personally. There were about 20 of us on that call. And the message was that Jerusalem was about to be recognized by the United States as the capital of Israel. I never will forget the day when I stood with Gilad, who was my friend, who was consul general for the nation of Israel. We stood at the U.S. Embassy there in Jerusalem, stood by the seal of the United States of America, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, like Jesus said it would happen 2,000 years ago. See, God said to Ezekiel when he was preaching that message at the cemetery, God said, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. And God kept his promise in verse 10 because God had said about the future of Israel, they came to life and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. In 2019, U.S. News and World Report stated that Israel had the eighth most powerful army in the world. Now, we're probably not surprised at that because we're familiar, but here's the thing. If Israel's eighth most powerful army in the world, they're behind only the U.S., Russia, China, Germany, U.K., France, and Japan. The next smallest population nation on that list would be a tie between France and Great Britain. They both have 67 million people. You know how many people Israel have? Yes. Israel has 9 million people. And yet they have the eighth most powerful army in the world. I mean, 11 states are bigger. I mean, Israel's about the size of New Jersey. And yet God said to Ezekiel that day in the cemetery, preach, and they came to life and stood on their feet a vast army. Now that's chapter 37. But when we go into chapter 38, we read about this new country being invaded. There is a war in the last days that involves an invasion of Israel that hasn't happened yet. It's not Armageddon. It's a coalition of nations led by a despot who is not antichrist. Well, that's a lot of definition, isn't it? Okay, let's go into chapter 38 and let's read. Son of man, this is Ezekiel, turn and face Gog of the land of Magog. Now, Gog is a title. Magog is a country. The prince who rules over the nations of Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him, give him this message from the sovereign Lord. Gog is a ruler of this land. Well, I'm going to give it away to you now. It's Russia. Gog, I am your enemy. I'm not saying it's Putin. You just, you see what I see. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws to lead you out with your whole army. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya will join you too with all their weapons. Gomer and all its armies will also join you along with the armies of Beth Tagarma from the distant north and many others. Now, interesting to me that in Ezekiel 38, 6, it says from the distant north. Well, if you look at Israel on a map and go straight up, what do you have? You have Russia, distant north. And then notice what else God says to Ezekiel in the distant future. This is not a near-term prophecy. This is a prophecy for our times. Well, I'd love to talk to you about this for 30 hours, but only have a few minutes left, so I'll try to give you a summary. This is about a leader that the Bible calls Gog. It's a title and a coalition of nations. So if you take, as I said at the beginning of this message, if you take the land masses that are mentioned here, and of course, God gave Ezekiel their current names in his time, 
But if you take those land groups and give them modern names, what you have are Russia, parts of Central Asia. Russia leads the invasion. I think they have different motivations from the other countries. Possibly Turkey, but definitely Iran. And several areas that are now controlled by radical Muslim extremists. Here's the question. Is what we read in Ezekiel 37 through 39, is it talking about our times? I can't say for sure that that's what's going on, uh, that what's going on right now is an absolute fulfillment. But the one thing I can say for sure is that we are talking about our times. Watch, read this with me. Ezekiel 38, 10, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you will devise this wicked scheme. This is talking about to the ruler of Russia in the last days. You will say, Israel is an unprotected land filled with unwalled villages. I will march against her and destroy them. I will go to those, now here's how we know we're talking about our times, to those formerly desolate cities that are now filled with people who have returned from exile in many nations. As we went up and down and east and west throughout the nation of Israel, it is so amazing how all these cities that were once empty are full and productive. In fact, it's, it's so amazing to me that some of the most advanced technology in the world is happening in Israel. I mean, I saw things over there and heard about things that just blow my mind. They're on the cutting edge of medical breakthroughs that just would rock our world. And so you understand this is the time frame. God says it's in the distant future when the people that were when they were in, 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 in other lands all around the world, when they're brought back into the land and the cities are productive. I never will forget rounding the bend and Jerusalem coming into view. And I looked at Jerusalem and there were building cranes all over the city. Now God says in those days, there will be an invasion by a handful of nations. It'll happen at the beginning of the tribulation. So does God predict the outcome of that invasion? He does. Let's move now to late in chapter 38, verse 18. This is what will happen in that day when the invasion happens. My hot, my hot anger, God said, will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. I will summon the sword against Gog on all my mountains. I will execute judgment upon him with plague, bloodshed, torrents of rain, hailstones, burning sulfur. I don't know what all that means. It just doesn't sound good. But God is saying, I'm going to win this fight. I've been in conversations with leaders. I've been in conversations with people in Israel. I got to tell you, this is different from anything we've ever experienced before. There hasn't been, I mean, like I said, rockets have been lobbed into Israel from the north and south for decades now. This is different. We, 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 we've never had a scenario where terrorists have poured across the border and beheaded babies and, and snatched people away to take them to the tunnels. We, we've, never been in a, we've, never, we've never been in a scenario where the terrorists burned families alive. We, we've never been in a scenario where the terrorists had given, were given instructions, target elementary schools. Anyone who has the idea that this is just going to evaporate and be a blip on our year, I assure you that is not the case. And nobody knows 
Nobody knows exactly how this is gonna come out, and I sure don't know. I just know this. I know that God said he's in control. I know that God says he's the one who's gonna sort this out. Now, I just wanna to go to an area of curiosity. This is just an area of interest. It really doesn't maybe add anything to the sermon, but one more, I wanna show you one more place why I know this happens at the beginning of the tribulation. If you go into chapter 39, the Bible says that when this victory is won by God, that Israel will use the abandoned military equipment for fuel for seven years. And I don't know exactly what happens in this battle. There's just a spot, like I said, this is just for curiosity. It's not really helpful, I guess. But the Bible says that it will take seven months to bury the dead. And when one is located, a mar uh, when a bone is located, a marker is set there. I mean, that's in Ezekiel 39, 15. Whenever they find a human bone, they will set up a marker next to it. I don't know if there's some sort of contamination. I don't know what God uses to win this battle, but I know that he will win. Okay? It's time to close. Why this message? I've been watching Bible prophecy all my life. Long before I was a preacher. When I was a kid, I was intrigued by this because you know what? I'll be honest with you. I had a hard time being a believer. There's a part of me that's just a little bit of a skeptic. I can remember when I was very small, just wishing I could believe like my parents. And I don't know why I'm this way. I don't know, maybe God just tuned me to this key so that, so that I could talk to people who are in a similar place. But you know, when my dad told me at the beginning of the Six-Day War, even though the media that we were listening to said that Israel was going to be pushed off into the sea by Nasser, on that first day when we were being told that the reason why Israel was going to disappear as a nation was because all these other countries had all this Russian-made military hardware. And when my dad turned to me in the car that day as we were listening to the news and he said, Israel will win, I guarantee it. Just like Joe Namath at Super Bowl III. And the next day when I watched the news and I saw that Soviet military hardware strewn all over the Sinai, that did something to me as a nine-year-old kid because my dad knew something that the guy on the radio didn't know. He knew it because God said it. And God is always right. And nobody flips God off. Well, as I said, I've known these things all my life. But for the first time in my life, it's like everything is lining up. It's just lined up perfectly. And I don't know. I don't know if Jesus is coming today. I don't know if he's coming a year from now. I don't know if he's coming 10 years from now. I don't know when he's coming back. And I sure won't try to tell you for, that I know when he's coming. But I just know this. I know whatever is going on. I know we're in the zone. I know we're in the zone. I just have too much scripture to know we're in the zone. What that means in, in time, I don't know. That's all in God's hands. But I know we're in the zone. Someone I've been asked, Mark, do you know if we're in the last days or not? Oh, man, we've been in the last days for sure since 1948 and definitely since 1967. Sometimes I get the feeling that I'm just sitting at the gate in an airport waiting for my flight to be called. 
That's the first reason I bring this message to you. I see things lined up. Number two, I bring this message to you for this reason, because you and I, are, we're just bombarded by all of this, all this information. And I'm glad for the information, but guys, this is not a time to keep your, keep your eyes on what America's doing or what the Soviets are doing or what the Chinese are doing or, or, or what the militants are doing. It's not even time to keep your eyes on what Israel is doing. Keep your eyes on what God is doing in the world because God is the one who's gonna write the final script. You said, Mark, it's a scary world that we're living in. I know it is. But there's a verse of scripture that I love so much. In Isaiah 59, 19, the Bible says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. I love that. And now the most important thing I'll say in this message, and I'm not trying to shake you, I'm not trying to scare you. That's the last thing I want to do. I mean, after all, we're not living in the end times. We're living in the beginning times because we're about to experience what God built us for. But if there's something between you and God that you haven't taken care of yet, you shouldn't put it off. And I got to tell you, when Jesus comes, I want my windows to be clean. I mean, somebody here is in a relationship that's toxic and you're being abused and you're being mistreated and, and you, you live in that, in that today, there's no reason to go on any further. You're God's daughter. I mean, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to have treatment like that. You're God's son. If there's a relationship you need to end because it's toxic, don't wait till the future. I mean, here's the thing. One of my favorite sayings that I say all the time to staff and leaders, spoiled milk doesn't go good. It doesn't matter how long you leave it in the refrigerator. Spoiled milk doesn't go good. Good milk can go spoiled, but spoiled milk doesn't go good. Maybe there's somebody here and you need to forgive someone. And you're like, well, I'm just not ready yet to forgive. I don't want to have any unforgiveness in my heart when Jesus comes. Or it could be you need to ask forgiveness. And you're like, well, that person did wrong stuff too, but you're not responsible for them. Maybe there's someone you need to ask forgiveness for. Maybe you got a friend or a loved one who, who's in your family. Maybe you work with someone that you love very much. Maybe you have a great friend and that, that friend is not spiritually resolved. And maybe it's the time to have a conversation with them about spiritual things. Maybe it's time to share with them what Jesus means to you. I think there are a lot of believers who've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, but they've never taken the step of believer's baptism. And guys, no matter, you, know, you say, well, Mark, I have all these spiritual developments in my life. Listen, guys, the first thing Jesus asks you to do after you accept Christ is to be baptized. Now, baptism won't, won't save you, but you are baptized because you are. It's a public affiliation with Jesus Christ. How would I face Jesus? And, I, and the one thing he's asked me to do publicly to demonstrate my affiliation with him, how am I gonna face Jesus and say to him, Lord, I just couldn't get up there in front of all those people. And Jesus was like, well, I hung naked on a cross for you for six hours. Well, I was afraid to get my hair messed up.
All I'm saying is this, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting anything. I don't know if Jesus comes today. I don't know if he comes 50 years from now. I don't know that. I just know this. I know we're in the zone. And I wouldn't want to put something off. Most of all, you know, when I was a teenager, I remember so many songs were written on the coming of the Lord. And there was a song that Mary Alice and I used to listen to. And the song talked about someone who came one day too late to Christ. If you're here and you've never settled your eternal destiny, maybe you've thought about it, maybe you've heard me talk about praying to receive Christ and you said to yourself, someday I'm gonna do that, but not today because, well, I don't know how this would affect my relationship with the person I'm in a relationship with. I don't know how people would think about me. I don't know. I, I grew up in a different religion. I'm not sure how my parents would feel about this. And you've thought about it and you've planned to, but you've put it off. I wouldn't put it off another day. And as I close out this message, let me just say this. I wanna give you the opportunity to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life and to settle your eternal destiny today before you get out of your chair, whether you're in South Auditorium or North Auditorium or you're watching online or on television. The Bible says that eternal life is the gift of God. It's not the work of religion, it's the gift of God. And here's how you get it. First of all, you come in and you admit to God that you are a sinner. And you don't try to pretend that your sin is not sin because that'll scuttle the whole deal. You got to get honest with God about what's broken in your life. And then the Bible says that salvation is acquired by believing, by putting your personal faith in the fact that Jesus died for your sins, that his blood paid for your sins and that he arose from the grave and that he lives as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and you invite him into your life to be your savior and you get off the throne of your life and you allow Jesus to be on the throne of your heart. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what? I can't be perfect for 30 minutes, but I can call on the Lord. I can ask him for the gift. And so as I close out this message, here's what I want to do. I want to ask you to pray with me if you want to receive Jesus. And these, the words themselves will not save you, but if you mean them from your heart, the Lord will hear your prayer. And for that reason, I'm going to put a little break in between each sentence so that you can decide if you want to say these things to God. Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I admit that. I cannot save myself. but I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And since Jesus is alive, I receive Jesus as my savior. I worship him as my king. Thank you for giving me eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you just stay with me for a few more seconds? If you just prayed with me, if you're in on our campus today, all you have to do is just text PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D to 97,000. Follow the steps and we'll send this to you. God willing, we'll see you next weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.